Alrighty, folks, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 12 tonight. Uh, we looked at chapter 14 last week, kind of a one-off message about uh, uh, trusting in the Lord. I wanted to save this one for this week. It's, it's, going to, uh, it's going to span a few chapters as we look at King Saul from the day he walks into uh, office and sits on the throne for the first time and to the day that, not that he leaves office, but the day that it's clear uh, that he has, uh, he has fallen short of the potential that he had and an opportunity that was given to him. So we're going to begin in just a few minutes in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 19 and read through verse 25, which we've read before, but it's uh, uh, going to set the tone for the message tonight. So uh, if, if you've never read 1 Samuel before, you've probably definitely heard of King Saul. You most likely know that God selected his successor years before he would relinquish the throne. So Saul became the king, uh, not perfect circumstances. We'll talk about that. He became the king. And then a few years into his reign, he was informed, hey, your days are numbered. Your time is going to be cut short. You will not be the king forever. You will not have a dynasty like kings usually do. Your son will not be king. Your grandchildren will not be king. One day you will be a one and done as far as uh, your dynasty because you have disobeyed God. You have broken his covenant or your covenant with him. So God is going to replace you. But uh, can you imagine what it must be like uh, to know that you're going to be replaced at your job, but you don't know when and you don't know who. Uh, now, if you weren't already a bit paranoid, you probably would become that way. Uh, and, and of course, when it came to Saul, he wouldn't have been put on notice had he not woefully mishandled his position. Uh, Saul's story is a tragedy. In, the, in every possible way. Uh, Saul's story is a tale of what might have been, what could have been. It's an account of unfulfilled potential. Uh, remember, the prophet Samuel uh, uh, had told the people of Israel that they uh, did not need a king, yet they asked for a king. And, and we've, we've studied this the last couple of months extensively. Uh, it was never God's perfect will to give Israel a king, yet in their stubbornness, he relented and permitted that they find and get their king. And, and, and Samuel, uh, again, when, when, when he had told them this wasn't God's will, he scolded them, reprimanded them. Uh, even after after that, when, when they found Saul and they picked Saul because he met all, the expecta- or met all the qualifications, he checked all the boxes, he was tall, he was handsome, he was powerful, he was rich, he was the right, he was the right candidate, he had everything going for him that you would want in a king. Uh, after they selected him and anointed him as king, Samuel issued an olive branch or extended an olive branch from God to both Saul and to Israel um, that even in, if this next chapter was not God's ideal, even if this was never God's plan, to give Israel a king, um, God was willing to work things out for the good. Even though this was not his plan A, even though they disobeyed God and went in a direction that he was not in favor of, still yet God was willing. This is so important. God was willing to bless them and God was willing to establish Saul and build a kingdom under Saul. If Saul would just put him first. So within Saul's own heart, there is this dueling, uh, th- this dueling motive. Uh, does he seek the Lord or does he do what kings usually do, which is serve and honor themselves and their own agendas? So at the end of 1 Samuel 12, Samuel is addressing the people one last time. He's addressing Saul and the nation. They've just coronated Saul. They've just installed Saul. And listen closely to what Samuel says. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. 
And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So they install the king. Samuel tells them this was not God's will. They admit that it wasn't God's will. And, you know, it's easy to admit you did wrong after you've done the wrong, right? And, and I'm not making light of it, but we, we often will say, oh, I'm not going to sin. And then we end up sinning. And then we admit that we sinned, even though we've already done it, right? We should have just not done it. But that's how we are, right? We are human. We, we obviously uh, uh, do things that we shouldn't do. And then only after we've done it, will we admit that maybe I shouldn't have done this. So they admit to Samuel that, hey, this probably wasn't the best plan. Now we've given this man power. And as soon as Saul got the power, it clearly was going to his head. As soon as he got power, they could already see the wheel spinning in his mind. This guy is going to take advantage of us. This guy is going to do what kings do, which is rule ruthlessly, which live selfishly and exalt his own throne above all of our seats. So Samuel says to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. No, I don't know if that really, you know, that, that, that doesn't make you feel too good, right? Hey, don't be afraid. But he confirms, you have done wrong. You have sinned. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Satan would love nothing more for us to disobey God and then believe that we have went too far. Uh, Satan would love nothing more for you and I to break God's law, to break God's commandments, and to sin, and then convince us that we have crossed the line, that we cannot repent, we cannot come back to God. But the gospel, the Bible makes it very clear that God's heart is always merciful towards us. Even though they should not have sinned, Samuel says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with your whole heart. Because there is still an open door. Now, that might not seem fair to you. You may think, well, why would God let them come back after they just walked away willingly? God's a lot better than we uh, would imagine uh, uh, ourselves to be if we were God. But we're thankful he's that merciful, right? Because we need that mercy ourselves. Verse 21, do not turn aside for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great, great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I teach you the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in the truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel lays it out pretty clear to the people. He makes it clear. Number one. This was not God's first best vision for Israel. He does not mince his words. He does not hide the truth of that fact. Hey, this was not God's plan. This was not God's plan A. This was not God's first best and first and best vision. He had a better way. You didn't choose it. So it will be tougher on you. It will be harder on you. It's going to be more difficult than it should have been. Now, you know, he's not rubbing it in their face. He's not trying to pile on. He's just stating the facts. And a lot of us, we probably need to, to, to accept that, that when we, when we make the wrong choices, when we do things we shouldn't do, uh, it's not that God's going to cut you off and say, I don't want nothing to do with you anymore. But the reality is, if we choose something that's not God's best and not God's first for us, then there will be some, some tougher circumstances as a result. That's just the fact of life, right? 
But this was not God's first and best vision for Israel. But nonetheless, nonetheless, he was going to keep an open mind, open arms approach towards them. So what do we hear from Samuel? If you seek the Lord, if you turn to the Lord, there is still hope. Why? Because God will not, what does verse 22 say? God will not forsake his people for the sake of his great name. God will not forsake his people. Not even for your sake necessarily. God, his name's sake, his character, he's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He's slow to anger, of great kindness. So for the sake of his own name, his own character, and of course he loves us. Of course it's for us too. God will not forsake his people. We may forsake him, but he does not shut the door. And that's, that's, that's the word. That's the scripture. Now, there's parts of us that think, well, I don't know about that. Is that fair for God to, you know, for some people to have a chance to get back in after they walk away? We'll talk about that in a minute. But God is going to keep an open mind, open arm approach towards the people. If they would rely on him, he would forgive them and bless them. So was it his best and first vision for them to have a king named Saul who was going to be selfish and live a, have an agenda that was not glorifying God? No. But if they seek God in spite of being in this less than ideal place, if they seek God, if they rely on God, God would make the best of it. Did he owe that to them? No. Could he have just turned them loose? Yes. But verse 22 makes a promise. God will not forsake his people. Who are his people? In this instance, it's Israel, but let's go even broader. Every one of us are made in the image of God. So every one of us are the people, are God's people. We are God's creatures. We are God's creation. God will not forsake his own God will not deny his own. When his own deny him and his own forsake him, he will not and does not forsake us. You know, I want to say this. Maybe you've got people in your family. Uh, you've got uh, parents. You've got children. You've got loved ones. You've got extended family. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm sure you do. You've got family members who have walked away from God and, and by result walked away from you or have made things difficult on you. And you wonder, what should my posture be towards them? Uh, Samuel says to them, hey, I'm not happy with you, but far be it from me to not pray for you. Now, now, we'll learn. Samuel is not afraid to get in their face and say, you've sinned, you've messed up, you, don't, you should not do this, you should change. And Samuel, is, he's, he's, very, he's very in their face, very, uh, very present. He, he, he's not passive. But Samuel wants these people to know that, hey, I'm not going to stop praying for you just because you've sinned against God. I'm not going to you know, cross my arms and say, well, good riddance. That's not how it works for Christians, and we should keep that in mind. Uh, in a world that has turned away from God, what is our posture towards the world? We are to pray, and we are to have an open mind, open arm approach toward them. Does that mean we ignore the sin and we, we apologize for the sin? By no means, but we always pray, and we always have an open mind, open arm approach because God has an open mind open arm approach. But, but let's talk about this for a minute. There's part of us that reads this and thinks, isn't God letting them get away with something? And the simple answer is yes. If we were to bring this and, and apply this to our world, this is where the church often gets, in, we often get ourselves in a little bit of a, of a confusing place and we often get a little bit us versus them and self-righteous uh, spirit drives up in us or rises up in us. Um, is God letting Israel off the hook? I mean, they totally disobeyed God. They totally did the thing he told them not to do. And here he says, after they've done it, I'm still here, God. I'm still going to take care of you. I'm still here if you'll turn to me. 
Now, is that God letting them off the hook? Well, yeah, it's God letting them off the hook. But think about this. When God told Adam and Eve, if you take of the fruit of the garden, uh, of, the, of the knowledge of, of good and evil, when God told Adam and Eve that, what did he tell them? If you do it, you'll die. Right? You'll die. Now, I know they spiritually died, but did they die when they did that? Did he kill them? No. Now, is God being dishonest? No. Somebody died. An animal died. He killed an animal and put the skin on them, the clothes on them. Something had to die for them. Right? And, and isn't that a picture of the gospel? When, when, when God did not kill Adam and Eve, what was he saying in that moment? I'm going to put the penalty on somebody else. And we know who somebody else was, right? The same somebody else that died for all of us. When God did not kill Adam and Eve like he said he would, that was letting them off the hook. That's what grace does. That's what grace is. Now, this gets under our skin when we see this going on with others. Listen, but we really ought to observe it and rejoice because I guarantee it. Have you ever looked at someone that got off the hook and maybe you thought to yourself, I don't know why God did that. Why would God forgive them? Why, would God, why wouldn't God judge them? The same reason he didn't judge you, right? I guarantee we've also been given a second or third or fourth or fifth chance, haven't we? So when we see somebody else get off the hook, maybe we should thank God for the mercy he gave them. Because will there be a judgment day coming if they don't repent? Absolutely. But we should be thankful when they get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and sometimes they get a hundred chances. But we don't know the heart of God. So obviously it would, be, it, would have been a, it would have been great if they had never disobeyed. But the fact of the matter is that that's how God respond or is willing to respond to any of us. If you think someone was let off the hook, just remember we've been let off the hook too. We have. I'm not making light of sin. Sin has consequences. They paid the consequences. We'll read the story. It's very consequential. They don't get off easy. Um, but I want us to know that it's by the grace of God that all of us are here tonight. Do we suffer from the sins and the choices that we make that are not in God's will? Absolutely to various degrees. And we will, but we all reap the benefit of God's grace. And, and the verse on the screen is one that we looked at the other night. Romans chapter 11 verse 5. At this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace it's no longer by the, by the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. And, and that's a wordy way of saying it's by the grace of God that all of us are saved did we all get let off the hook yes we all got off the hook because sin we weren't punished for our sin Jesus was punished for our sin so was it God's will for Saul to be king no was it God's will for Israel to be out of his out of his perfect place no but once he became king, God was willing to show grace and lead Saul in the best possible way. So here's the thing you should learn and you should apply to your families. When someone in your family or someone in your close proximity or in our church, when someone does something they shouldn't do and they really can't undo it, what is our posture towards them? We love them and show them that God is a forgiving God and God is a merciful God. And hey, we don't have to always be there to say, I told you so, you shouldn't have done that. They know they shouldn't have done that. They get it at that point. 
But we should show people that God is a forgiving God, a merciful God. And yes, would it have been better if they had not sinned to begin with? Absolutely. But if they did sin, and if we do sin, there's always mercy that can raise us back up. So let's keep that in mind. If you read the whole story, you'll see that God made, made his spirit available to Paul. He offered Saul, or not Paul, but Saul, he offered him a new heart. Uh, but Saul didn't want him. Uh, God tried, God offered to make the best of this kingdom, uh, and Saul was not interested in that. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Saul had his eyes and heart set on power and pride of his own kingdom. So Saul begins to his tenure as king on the wrong foundation. It, it may not jump off the page as obvious, uh, but once we start to break this down, we'll, we're going to see where Saul went wrong. Uh, upon his coronation, everything seemed to be set up for Saul to be a good king. He had the looks, he had the charm, he had the stature, he had the wealth, he had the power. He knew, had to ma- he knew how to manage it. He came from it. He had everything going for him to leverage his seat for a, the, the best outcome and the best kingdom. But in the kingdom of God, those things, power and wealth and stature and looks and charm, in God's kingdom, those things are not necessarily automatically going to lead to a good or a glorifying uh, life to God. Uh, A king who is rich and powerful and good-looking and charming and charismatic, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good king in God's eyes. And this is important. Again, it's an election year. Pay attention to this. We've talked about this before. But the way God counts or measures success is not the same as the way the world world does. In God's eyes, good or great are arrived at through a particular way, a very particular way. Uh, It's not about how rich or how famous or powerful or successful any given person is, even a king. It's about what they do with their power and how they honor God with it. There's a few passages in the Bible that we've looked at before that you should always keep bookmarked uh, because when you give, when you are given a, any modicum of power, when you are given a privilege of any kind in this life, and all of us are powerful in some ways, all of us are privileged in many ways, when we look at our power and privilege and think, how should I manage this? How can I be a great person in light of what God has given me, in light of who God has made me to be? There's a few passages you should keep in mind, and, and the, the number one passages from Mark chapter 10. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers or powerful of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's his way of saying, y'all know how this works in the world. When somebody's rich and powerful and, and smart, they let everybody else in the room know that they're rich and powerful and smart. And they, they like to rub it in people's faces. And, and you know, the rich guy or the rich woman or, or the powerful man that runs the business, runs the company, runs the world, they like everyone to know who they are and they want you to bow at their feet. And, and, and that's what a lot of us aspire to be. We want to be the person that walks in the room and everybody thinks, well, hey, do you know who they are? They've got money. They've got power. They own that. They do that. They control that. And we want people to look at us and think that we're somebody. And we want people to bow down to us because that's what the world trains us to be like and that's what the world aspires to be like and and Jesus said hey in the kingdoms of man when you get power and money and wealth and wisdom you let everybody know it and you want people to to bow down to you but it shall not be so it shall not be so among you he says that's not how it's going to work in God's kingdom whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant whoever wants to be first must be a slave So hey, in God's kingdom, we don't walk in the room and expect people to bow down to us. We walk in the room and bow down to people. Jesus, that's crazy. He says, okay, just watch me. See what I do. 
See how I operate. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. We know what Jesus did with his life, right? The night before he died, he got up from the table, he washed the disciples' feet because the next day he was going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom? We don't walk in the room with our chest stuck out with our money and all the power and all the things. We, we don't want that kind of recognition. We don't think that's impressive. We, we don't aspire to be that way. And by no means do we leverage that. We walk in the room and roll our sleeves up and we look for somebody to serve. We look for some way to make somebody else's life better. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. The way of the cross, the way of Jesus, the others first, God first way of laying down power and exalting others, that is a foolish way to the world. That is a silly way to the world. The world rolls their eyes at that. The world says that's not doesn't make any sense but you and I know that is where the power of God lies because how did you and I get saved because Jesus poured his life out and that's where the power comes from first Corinthians 127 Paul says God chose what is foolish what's more foolish than laying power down what's more foolish than bowing down and serving others what's more foolish than being a slave of everyone what's more foolish in the world's eyes than putting others first and not yourself there's nothing more foolish according to the world because the world says it's all about me, me, me and what I can do and how you can help me get there. The way of the cross, it's foolish to the world. But God uses that way to shame the wise. God uses this weak way to shame the strong. So keep that in mind, that humility, God first, others first mindset. Keep that in mind as we begin to see how Saul conducts himself as king and see if you pick up on anything. Chapter 13 Verse number one, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan, underline that, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gabeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul, underlying that, Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all of Israel heard it, and it, and it was said that Saul attacked the garrison. Uh, again, underlying that. Saul, it, it was said that Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people as the sand, which is on the seashore in the multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in the caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. Some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembled. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Make note of that. Now it happened as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me... <laughs> 
that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines gathered together in Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Notice all the me's and I's that Saul uses, because that's all he's really worried about. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So a couple things here. We immediately get the sense that Saul may be tall and handsome and rich and powerful, but he has a tiny, tiny little ego. He is very insecure. How do we know that? The first thing that jumps off the page at us is in verse 3, Jonathan is the hero. Jonathan is the one who rolls into enemy camp and attacks the Philistines. But it's Saul that blows the trumpet. And it's Saul that takes the credit. And in verse 4, Israel begins to hear the report that Saul has done this thing. And then we get down in the later verses, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, where Saul is all about me and about I and about what he thinks is important for his reputation. Jonathan, Saul's son, does the heavy lifting. But the word that Saul spreads is that Saul defeated the garrison. And that's not what happened, is it? Jonathan did it. Saul takes the credit. This is the first of many, many signs that Saul was driven by ego and by self-esteem. Eventually it gets so bad that he benches Saul, benches Jonathan. Remember last week we talked about it. Saul goes on vacation and Jonathan sees the danger and he says, guys, if we sit around and wait on my dad to get back from vacation, we're going to be in trouble. So we got to go do this job. We got to go protect, the, protect our nation. And then if you read the whole, the whole chapter 14, Saul threatens to kill Jonathan because Jonathan acted against his dad's will, even though Jonathan was just doing what he had to do. Saul eventually becomes so jealous of Jonathan that he removes him from co-regent, removes him from this assistant position. You know, politicians, celebrities, famous and rich and powerful people, they tell on themselves because they're obsessed with credit and numbers and metrics and size. They always want the glory, the attention, and the accolades. Any of us could fall victim to this, whether you're a pastor or a parent or just an average citizen. We all have to watch out for pride. Pride is a sinister, destructive thing. Pride will make us jealous of people who, have, who by no means are a threat to us. Pride can make self-sufficient adults worry about children taking their place or taking their credit. We can easily become so caught up in getting praised and recognized and applauded. We, become, we can't imagine sharing the spotlight. And here's what Saul is going to learn. He may have been a king, but he would never be the king. Do you hear that? You may be a king or a queen. You may be a ruler, but you will never be the ruler. If we think we're large and in charge, we will become so obnoxious to be around and we put ourselves in danger with the one and only king. 
but he will put us in our place. He will humble us if we don't humble ourselves. First Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter says, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves and all, all of you with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties and cares on him because he cares for you. Next time you think about sounding your own trumpet, just ask yourself the question, wouldn't it be better if I let God get the glory and I let God give me a better reward? There are, there are times in this life where we think I'm not getting what I need to get. I'm not getting the credit, the attention, the glory. And we're, just, we're temperamental people. We get, we get this honestly. We all want the spotlight on us and we get jealous when it's not. And we're, we, 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 all, we're, we, we say we're not being that way, but that's just our nature. But wouldn't it be better to let God get the glory and God give us a better reward? You know, I, I know sometimes we get discouraged and we get so desperate for attention and credit and recognition, but I promise you, it's always better to cast those cares on the Lord because he cares for you and he will exalt you in his own time. When we have to knock others down to raise ourselves up or make some noise on our own behalf, we're never going to be satisfied with whatever comes our way. We will only find true affirmation, true recognition when we seek God's glory and rest in his care. He will make sure that we are built up and encouraged, but the secret that we can't let, that we can't see in the fog of our own egos and our own self-esteem, in our own feelings, self-esteem and pride are not our friends. They just want to enslave us and cause us to see people as competition and become disappointed in everybody, including God. Unfortunately, Saul does not stop at stealing Jonathan's glory, but he wants even more praise. He steps into the role of a priest. And that's, why the, that's why Samuel gets so upset at Saul down in these verses 9, 10, and 11. John, the, 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 the scriptures made it very clear that a king was never to be a priest and a priest was never to be a king. Those offices were separate. It kept a priest from becoming too powerful. It kept a king from becoming too powerful. God wanted these offices to, to know that needed each other. Saul was just a king. He wasn't a priest. A priest was just a priest. They weren't a king. So it was to keep everyone humble. It was to keep everybody relying on each other. Saul rolled his sleeves up and said, I don't need anybody else. I don't need a preacher. I don't need a pastor. I don't need a priest. I can be that for myself. Pagan kings and godless politicians and even people to this day all want to step in the place of God or even the job of a minister and they want to say, well, that's obsolete. I don't need them. I have me and myself and my own ability. And at, at that point, at this point, the power was already going to Saul's head. He was hungry for more and more. And again, this is the exact opposite approach that we see godly leaders take in the scriptures. Jesus himself modeled for us the way of a Christian, the way that we all should live. Listen to this from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but have, let's go back, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, Saul wasn't worried about nobody but himself, to the point that he even took credit from his own son. And what, if, what if we just live by, what if, you want to you memorize a verse for the year and make, make one verse your goal for the, for the year to, 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 to put into practice? Most of us wouldn't get past Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> This is verse three, not five, but do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, who does that? 
Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but to the interests of others. How, you know, this is the secret. You know, you know how you never sin? We're all gonna sin, I know, but you know, how you, you know how you never sin? When you're thinking, hey, how does this affect somebody else? Right? How's this gonna affect them? How's this gonna impact them? You, you know how you always do the right thing? You think to yourself, how's this gonna affect them? You think, well, man, I'm, you know, Justin, what about living for, what about just giving, you know, having, having a day where I just do what I need to do for me? Hey, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility consider the other's well-being. And he says, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So, hey, this is the mindset that you can have. And, and what did Jesus model for us? Even though he was God, he did not count his equality with God as something to hold on to. Now, we know he is God, was God, always will be God. But in, the, in his earthly life, he didn't use his divinity to get, people's, to get people to do what he wanted them to do. He laid it down, right? We already talked about this. He emptied himself. He became a servant. Not only did he become a servant in the likeness of men, but more specifically, he was found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, where did this end up taking Jesus? And why is this the model for all Christians and for all people that want to live a great life? Because what did God do after that happened? Therefore, when you see therefore in the Bible, find out what it's there for. So we know what it's there for. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He didn't grasp his power, but he laid it down. Therefore, as in response to what he did, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So you want, you want to get credit? You want to get a reward? You want to, be, you want to get accolades in, 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 in with your life? Do what Jesus did. Don't do what Saul did. He blew a trumpet and took someone's glory. He didn't rely on the priest to do the priest's job. He decided, I'll do the priest's job. And he rolled his sleeves up and he had everybody thinking about him because that was what he was concerned about. Here's how this works and we'll wrap up. If we have to be praised now, if we have to be praised now, I know this doesn't fly in most, even, church, even in churches, this is kind of foreign, but this doesn't fly in the real world. I get that, but we're not in the real world. We're in the kingdom of God. So we should operate differently. We should be different and look different and act different. If we have to be praised now, we most likely will lose our eternal reward. If we are content with deferring that praise now, we will gain a far better eternal reward. Remember how Jesus spoke about those that had to bring attention to themselves, the people that would pray in, 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 in the marketplace and they, they would be so elaborate and loud and, 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 and showy? What did Jesus say? They have their reward. As in the only reward they're going to get is whatever man gave to them. Does that make sense? If we've got it, you know, all these people in the world today that are, that are, hey, look at me, and they get all this attention, they got money, they got power, they got fame. You know what God says? That's all you're going to get. I hope you're happy with your reward now because you got it. But if we are willing to hide behind the glory of God, the power of God, God will shine on us and share with us an eternal reward. So which would you rather have? What did, Saul, what did Samuel say to Saul in verse 13? He, for now, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. Key, would have. But what's 14 say? But now, your kingdom shall not continue.
There's two ways to live. You have your kingdom now or you've got God's kingdom later. Saul was only in power for the purpose of pointing to God, directing people to God, glorifying God, yet he used that position to exalt himself. It may not seem like Saul committed some egregious sins. It may seem like he was just being a king. That's the problem. He was being a king. He was being selfish. That's what kings do. But not when they realize there's a greater king. Not when we realize there's a greater king. In return... For exalting himself, he would lose himself. Isn't that what it says? This plays right in to what Jesus taught. And we'll wrap up. Luke chapter 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. That's the simplest way to understand, hey, how do, how do we live life in a way that honors God? Are you trying to preserve something for you? Or are you giving something away for God? Does that make sense? Are you trying to hold on to something for yourself? Or are you giving something away for God? Self-preservation equals self-destruction. Self-preservation, self-exaltation equals self-destruction. Samuel rebukes Saul. And says, Saul, this will be your downfall. Next week, we'll get into part two of Saul's downfall because Samuel's rebuke wasn't enough to call Saul to repent and cause him to change. In chapter 15, we're going to read about how he doubles down on his approach. And he says, you know what? Forget that whatever Samuel said. I've got to look out for me and here's what happens. Saul gets so afraid of losing himself, losing his kingdom, he thinks I've got to do everything I can to protect it and preserve it all the more. And he just digs his grave deeper. Stay tuned. Read ahead. Chapter 15 is a pretty good one. Read ahead next week. We'll get into that next time. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for being honest with us from your word lord we're not king saul and we don't run the nation of israel but we all we all have our own little kingdoms that we all live in and build and we all have a role we all have a have a a life that that we are given to honor you with and to put you first in and to exalt you in and lord whether we have whether we're living in poverty or whether we live in luxury all of us uh, run the risk of managing our life leveraging our life for the wrong reasons Lord, help us not to get distracted. Help us not to get deceived by the world. Lord, help us to understand that you've given us power. You've given us a position. You've given us a, a, a purpose so that we might honor you with it. And Lord, it's so easy to be selfish and, it, and it's so natural to be selfish. But if we're Christians, we have a supernatural nature and a supernatural calling. So help us not to settle for natural. Help us not to settle for normal, but help us to see something greater available and to put you first and to exalt you most so that we might show the world the life that's truly worth living. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.